Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, so it's towards the front. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just to let you know where we're going in the coming weeks, you heard the announcement that May 2nd we will go to one service at 10.30 a.m. Uh, for the month of May, I plan to preach on the book of Titus as we do uh, have a congregational meeting on May the 23rd for the purpose of electing men to the office of deacon and elder. So I'll be preaching on the book of Titus during the month of May. And then for June and July, I have always wanted to preach the book of Judges. And I'm really excited about getting into the book of Judges with you in the Old Testament in June and July. So what have we been doing this month? Well, April the uh, first Sunday in April the 4th was Easter Sunday, so we talked about the resurrection last week. We talked about missions. I suppose I've just been talking about important reminders, things we need to keep in mind. And my plan for today in Deuteronomy 6 was actually to talk about children's ministry and the importance of passing on the truths of the faith to the next generation. I do think that's an important thing that we need to remember. You heard it in uh, the call to worship this morning, and you'll hear it as I read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But part of the reason I wanted to do that is because I'm speaking at a children's ministry conference this week in North Carolina. And so I figured, well, I can just kill you know two birds with one stone, and I can do this reading and uh, preach on Sunday and then be ready next week. Well... The Lord had other plans for me and for you. I'm still going to my conference, and i got to write another talk about that. Because the Lord wouldn't let me go there. As I was in Deuteronomy 6, I just found it so applicable to the situation in which we find ourselves as the church in the United States. And so I just want to share that with you, and then you pray for me that the Lord gives me another message for those folks this week in North Carolina. So today I'm talking about sort of the future of the church in the United States, and it's just become a cliche that we say we live in uncertain times. I mean, everybody says that, right? Every commercial for a while, that's the way it started on television, and it's become a cliche, and things become cliche because a lot of people say those things because they tend to be true. When we do live in uncertain times, and I think, I don't know of anyone that would deny there has been a cultural shift in the way that we think about things, and things are changing a lot, and they are changing fast. And, by and large, they have not been really good changes for the evangelical church in the United States. I saw a Gallup poll right at the end of March, this was really interesting to me, that shows that church membership in the U.S. is now below 50% for the first time since they've been keeping the poll. Now, you might be like me, and I think to myself, well, they can make statistics show anything they want to, right? It just fits the narrative, right? Look at the question that they ask. Do you happen to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? Okay, so it's pretty low-key, right? Do you happen to be a member of a church? I mean, it's not a whole survey just about religious things. And notice the question is, do you happen to be a member of a church, a synagogue, or mosque? This isn't even just measuring Christians. This is Christian people, Jewish people, and Muslim people. And, of course, the trend is when this was first, the, when the poll was first done back in 1937, 73% of the people in the United States were members of some kind of church, a religious organization. And it stayed at 70% for like eight decades. Then, at the 
turn of the century, um, it began to dip below. It went from 70% down to 60% when you get to 2010. And then right here recently in the 2020 numbers, it's down to 47%. So we are now in a minority in our culture. Most people in the United States are not involved in a church or synagogue or a mosque. There are more people who are unchurched or not a part and don't consider themselves to have any kind of religious affiliation. And so um, it's such an interesting thing, and, and the trend is concerning to us in the church. But let me say this. I want to be very clear. This is not an alarmist, oh my, the church is going to hell in a handbasket. I want you to be clear that I am not worried about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus assured us in Matthew chapter 16 that on this rock he would build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I know the Lord is going to preserve a remnant of people who are his. I have full confidence of that. That is not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about is this community, right? What I'm worried about is this country. What I'm worried about is this particular people that are gathered in this place where there will be a church here, in 50 years. That's what I'm worried about. That's what I'm concerned about. I know there's going to be a group of people who follow the Lord Jesus. Will there be a group of people here who follow the Lord Jesus? That's my concern. And as I was looking at this book of Deuteronomy and struggling with this question of will the church of the Lord Jesus survive in this place, and if it does survive, how is it going to survive? What does that look like? What do we do as leaders of a church to ensure that there are a group of believers here after we are gone, as we pass the baton to other generations? And I found Deuteronomy 6 to be just shockingly applicable to our situation. How could that be? It was written 3,000 years ago at a different time and a different culture. Well, this book was written in the 40th year after the Israelites had left Egypt. Okay, the Exodus generation, those people who saw all the signs and wonders, they've all died out, right? Except for Caleb and Joshua. They've all died out. And they are waiting on the bank of the Jordan River, poised to cross the Jordan to take the promised land. And as they prepare to enter the, the land God had promised to give them, Moses preached a series of sermons here in Deuteronomy, and he talks about what God says the people have to do to survive and thrive in the land that he's going to give them. Do you see the connection there? What does God say a people must do to survive and thrive in the land that he gives them? That's the question that Deuteronomy is dealing with. So I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 6 and listen to what God would say, and then I'm going to read this and pray for us, and, and we'll dig in. Look at, the, look at the first two verses. I think it shows the connection. Moses is talking. God through Moses to his people. He's just reminded them of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Then Moses says this, Deuteronomy 6, beginning verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach to you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that... You, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his degrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Now, do you hear that? Let me just stop there. Do you hear? He's saying, this is what you do to have generations survive and thrive and enjoy a long life in the land God's giving you. He's setting, that's exactly what he's explaining, Okay. Good, so I mean, I don't know if it has your attention. It's got my attention. 
Lord, what do we do? Because I don't know, this is a confusing time. We haven't seen times like this. What do we do, Lord? I hope he speaks to you through the prophet Moses like he spoke to me. Let's pick up in verse 4. Here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord has promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, said the Lord. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, (laughs) these are uncertain times we live in. There are big changes, big shifts in how things are going on. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to look to you and to hear from your word how it is that your people live and thrive and survive even in the midst of a culture of people who worship other gods and believe many other things. Lord, please show us from your word what it looks like for a people in a prosperous place to not forget about you, to live for a long time, generation after generation in the land that you give us. Please come And show us that now. And I ask that you'd be willing to do it even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I don't know what you heard God say through Moses when I just read Deuteronomy 6. I wish we could go around and talk about that. And I hope you will have some conversations like that in your community group. Sometimes it's hard to hear what God says. It's like he's real excited about it. I didn't understand half the stuff that was in there. And I understand this was written 3,000 years ago to a different people in a different culture in a different language. 
My kids are studying Shakespeare right now that was written in English only about 400 years ago. We have trouble understanding that. What hope do we have understanding this? Well, one of the things that helps me sometimes is to write what the Scripture is saying in my own words, to say it the way that I would say it. Now, you have to be careful. This is not God's word. This is Scott writing what this says. But it helps me to put it in my own words to understand what it's saying. It helps, for instance, if you came to Deuteronomy 6 to talk about children's ministry, which is clearly in here. And the Lord is saying, I don't even think that's the major thing to say. The greatest commandment is here. You're going to blow by that and just talk about children's ministry? Well, it, it, it's related. But I want you to hear the paraphrase. This is what I wrote, and I encourage you to think about this. This is what I hear God saying here to answer that question. How do a people thrive and survive this is what i've adjusted a little bit for the new testament for the new testament people of god if you were with us for passover you'll make that jump pretty easily from the exodus generation to people on this side of the cross here's what i heard god saying i heard him say this hear this people of god there is only one supreme being in the universe our god is the one and only god love him with all you are and all you've got. The words he has spoken to us must be on our hearts all the time. His word must be the center of our lives so that we don't forget who he is and what he's done for us. As we live our lives and experience his blessings, we are tempted to forget God and all he has done. We must be careful to worship God alone and not let anything else take his place as the most important thing in our lives. God made us and everything around us so he knows how life is best lived in this world that he created. Let's walk in his ways so that we live life the best it can be lived. In the future, when your kids ask you, why do we live this way? Why do we make God and his word the center of all we say and do? Then tell them we were slaves in bondage to our own sin, suffering from our own poor choices and the poor choices of those around us. But God rescued us from our bondage by giving his only son to pay the price to free us. He did all that was necessary to bring us out of that darkness of bondage into the glorious light of his kingdom where he has adopted us as his very own children members of his own household god has done so much for us he is so wise and good and loves us so much that we are willing to do anything and everything he wants us to do because what he wants is what is best for us and we never want to grieve him Doing what he commands is the path to happiness and holiness and long life in the land he has given us. That's what I hear God saying. So then I pushed myself and said, okay, how do you boil that down to one sentence? I want you to have something that you can take away, right? What is, this, what is it in one sentence that God's calling us to do? Here's what I've got. Have a heart for God within a community of people who have a heart for God. Have a heart for God within a community of people who have a heart for God. Let's talk about that and unpack that. First, have a heart for God. You see that clearly in the text, right? 
Verse 4 says there's only one God. He is the highest thing, the most supreme thing, the most desirable thing. There is nothing greater than God. So verse 5, so love him with all you got, with all that you are. Love him. And I love the way he says verse 6, because I always look at this as obedience. And listen, there is a call to obedience here. I am not denying that. But listen to how he talks about the obedience of verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. He's not, he's not just calling for outward obedience to a set of laws that I can check it off, right? These things are to be on your hearts. That's harder. It's easier to comply with things I don't even like, I don't even agree with, right? But he's saying these things are to be on your hearts. That's what he wants is our, is our hearts. And it's a call to obedience from our hearts. And, and we obey God and walk in his ways because he's the greatest thing. He's the most precious thing to us. And his desires for us that he has set out in his word are what's best for us, so we make them the center of our lives. Listen, I'm going to make a couple of statements here. I don't want you to walk away and say something I didn't say, so I need you to listen close here, all right? What I'm saying is that God is the most important thing. Having a heart for him, a heart toward him, that's the most important thing. Now, here's the, the thing that you might miss. Don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? But, but listen closely. His word is not the most important thing. <gasps> I know. Listen, his word is important. Impressing his word on our hearts is all through the text. But the reason I say that is because sometimes we treat the word like that's the end and of, of itself, right? That if I read it every day and I can check off, I read it today. If I can articulate it well, if I can argue with you about it, that somehow that's a substitute for having a heart for God, and it is not. <laughs> He's saying, I want your heart. Yes, he wants your head too, but he wants, this is a vehicle for getting close to him. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm holding up my Bible, right? This is a tool that we use to get to know him, to get to him. His desires for us and his wishes are in here, but, but this book is not an end of itself. It's the way that we get to know him. Imagine that I get in my beautiful Toyota Highlander, the 04, you know, that I love so much, and, and I get in it, and I drive to see my daughter who's in college in Bloomington, Indiana, and I go to see her in that vehicle. And when I get there, I just keep polishing the car, and I just keep you know, looking at the Highlander making it, and make sure it has everything that it needs. <laughs> That's crazy. That is a vehicle to get you to your daughter so that you can see her and spend time with her. But we do that with the word, don't we? Oh, I'd like the word is the end of No, this is a vehicle to get to know God better. It's just a tool. It's just a way that he communicates with us. The end is him. I'm not saying don't spend time in the Word. I'm saying think about the way that you spend time in the Word and how you use it. It's not just to know more stuff. It's to know God better. I'd say the same thing about obedience. Is he about to say obedience is not the most important thing? Yes, I'm about to say obedience is not the most important. It is important. There are calls for obedience here. But listen, in this law God gives, 
he knows that there's not going to be perfect obedience. I mean, in the law, he gives provisions for when you sin, then these are the sacrifices that you need to go to the temple and that you need to, to engage in these sacrifices because he knew that we weren't going to obey perfectly. Obedience is not the highest thing. A heart toward God is the highest thing here. And when our heart is toward him, we do want to obey him. We do want to walk in his ways. But listen, don't come to this text and see the word is the most important thing, or the Ten Commandments is the most important thing, or your obedience is the most important. The most important thing is having a heart toward God. And those other things flow from that. Look at verses 10 and 12. Oh my gosh, if this doesn't describe our country, I don't know what does, right? When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and the land of slavery. Oh, my. God's done great things for us. And his concern is that he, we get so focused on the good things that he's given us that, that we forget about it. That's what he says. Don't forget about him when he gives you all this good stuff. Oh, my. We live in a land of plenty, don't we? There was a crisis at my house recently because the towel warmer broke. How's my towel going to be warm when I get out of the shower? I mean, I, I don't know, halt the presses. we got to get this resolved, right? Now, listen, I love a warm towel as much as the next guy, right? But, I mean, hashtag first world problems, right? I mean, think about that on a, on a greater scale. In this country right now, we have the luxury of debating things that those in a subsistence society don't have the luxury of debating. What do I mean? There's a mom someplace today who her biggest concern is finding enough water and food for her kids to survive today. And she probably doesn't care what pronoun you call her if you can help her find food and water for her family. Now listen, I'm not saying pronouns are not important, and I'm glad that we're in a place that we can debate those things. But my point is... When we're just living, when we're barely surviving, we don't have time to debate those things. And I'll tell you this, that mom, if she knows the Lord, is probably much more likely to cry out to God to feed her family and to provide water and food for them than those of us who have so many things in a land of plenty and worry about towel warmers, pronouns. Let me just ask you, does your affluence cause you to forget God? And I know what we all say, well, I'm not rich. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, anybody who lives here is affluent, okay? And we have so many things, the internet, television, movies, music, podcasts, Nintendo games, or whatever video games people play. Now, we have so many things that distract us and make us do what this, forget the Lord our God. And listen, none of those things are bad. I love all those things, and I hope you pursue them, but not to the extent that it causes you to forget God who gave them to us. 
keep going. Verse 13 says, fear the Lord your God. People get worried about that, that word fear. It just means to revere him, to give him the reverence and all the weight that he deserves. <laughs> Sometimes we might ought to fear him a little more than we do, but that's not what this word is saying right here. It's talking about a loyalty, a devotion. And when it says take oath in his name, it's just saying, look, there's nothing higher than God, so you can't swear by anything else. Verse 14, he says, no other gods, don't have any other gods, don't take on the gods of the people around you, because God is a jealous God. People get upset about that. Let's talk about jealous for a minute. The only reason we get jealous is because somebody else has something we want, right? I mean, here's Paul sitting here. If Paul gets sick, I'm not jealous because I don't want to get sick, right? If Paul goes to the master's, or to the Kentucky Derby, I'm jealous because I want to go to those things. Well, God is a person just like us, and he's saying, I want your heart. I want to be the center of your life. And when you put other things there, God is jealous. Because he does want your love, your devotion, your honor. He wants to be the center of all things. And when we don't put him there, he is a jealous God. And the text says that there are consequences for that. God, forgive us. We give our hearts to so many other things that, by the way, are lesser than God. They're never going to please us as much as God does, but we keep running these other things. Oh, my. Let me say just a word about have a heart for God, but have a heart for God within a community of other people who have a heart for God. This is not an individual thing that you just need to do. 21st century Americans, we read Deuteronomy 6, and we want to know, what do, I, what do I do, right? What do I do? Individualistic, pragmatic. Boy, that's the culture we live in. We've all breathed it. This is talking about a heart for God. Yeah, obedience comes down the line. A heart toward God. Yes, studying his word is a part that leads you to that. A heart toward God. Within a community of other people who have a heart. This is not for you to do by yourself, right? Look at it. Verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the group, the people of God. The Lord, our God. That's a plural possessive pronoun. He's our God. He's not your God. He's not my God. I hear people say, the God, I believe. My God does this, that, and that. Whoa. No, the Lord, our God. And look what he says in verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon, I would expect it to say, your heart, period. It's plural. Impress these things on your hearts. This is something for community. It's hard to do this on your own. Yes, if you're on a desert island, okay, I want you to still have a heart toward God, but you're not. And you're made to be in community with other people who have a heart for God. Look, he goes on to describe how we're to do these things in our homes. And when we walk along the road, when we're out and about, wherever we are, at the gate, that's the center of the community or the city in this context, this is something for community. Let me be clear. You, individually, do need to have a personal relationship with God. That is true. But I also want you to know that when you come into a personal relationship with God, you also come into a relationship with other people who are also in a relationship with God. 
And then together in a community of people who have a heart for God, are fighting to have a heart for God, we're set apart from other people. Because together we help one another with all things, but especially with maintaining, with helping one another with a heart toward God. Because it's hard to maintain that in the world that we live in. We're not meant to do it alone. No one is called single-handedly to preserve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Shoals area of Alabama. It takes a community. And we're called to do it in community. I've been preaching a lot. This is a lot of concept. Let's have a little. Let's have a little application. Don't miss this part. I thought he was already applying it. What does this mean for us as a church? If God wants His people to have a heart for Him, what does that mean for us as a church? And listen, we got to do some thinking about that. And here's why: because I can't change your heart. I can't make your heart go towards something. Let me just be honest with you: I can't control my heart. I can't make my heart go toward something. So if God says the way that we preserve a people here is having a heart toward him, and I can't control my own heart, and I sure can't control your heart, although people will try, what do we do? Well, how does God grow love in our heart for him? What does God do in the text? What does it show us to do? And you're thinking, I don't know. You've been looking at it all week. What do you see? God has Moses. Watch this now. God has Moses tell the people about God's heart for them, shown in what he has done for them. He's given you all this stuff. He's freed you from bondage. God has Moses tell the people about God's heart for them, and that develops in them a heart for him. Do you see that? That's why he talks about all the good stuff he's going to give them in 12 and 14. That's why he talks about how he's freed them from bondage in, in verses 21 and following. Because the answer to that is seeing God's heart for us is what develops in us a heart for him. I think that's true. Look at the text and see if you agree with me. But if it is true, then that means our job as leaders, that means your job as a spouse that means your job, parent, that means your job, Sunday school teacher, is to show people God's heart for them. Because that's what leads them to have a heart for him. Do you see that? I mean, just let me just, let me just show you very specifically. Verse 20, the kid says, what's the meaning of the law? Why do we have to do all this stuff? Usually the answer we give is, because I said so, or because you might fight me, I say, because God said so, right? Because you won't argue with him as much as you argue with me. Usually we say, because that's what God said to do. That's not the answer that's given. What does he say? Why do we do all this stuff? Verse 21, tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, God did all these miraculous things, and he conquered our enemies, and he brought us into this land that we got, that he had promised to give us, and he was faithful, and he gave us the land like he said he was going to. And then the Lord commanded us to obey these things so that we would prosper in the land. Do you see the order? 
Why do I do this stuff? Because God has a heart for you, and he's done all this stuff for you, and he loves you, and he wants what's best for you. And so we love him back, and we walk in his ways. That's the pattern of all the scripture. Read any Pauline epistle. He writes for pages about the heart that God has for his people before he ever gets into telling folks what to do. Oh, but we go right to Ephesians 5, don't we? Let me get some rules for holy living because we're 21st century individualistic Americans that just want you to tell us what to do. It's not what this is about. May God have mercy on us. I think we put a slide in here, Cooper. Didn't I got to preaching? Sorry. We said, look, here's the pattern. Seeing God's love for us grows in us a love for him, right? First uh, John 4, 19 says that, right? We love him because he first loved us. So seeing God's love for us grows us in us a love for him, and then our love for God results in our living for God, right? It flows out of having a heart for God. That's the pattern. That's the goal. That's how we... <laughs> Live long and prosper in the land that God has given us. It's that pattern right there. And I just have to say, as a church, we get these things out of order, don't we? As parents, we get them out of order. As leaders, we get them out of order. We have this zeal to have people live for God, and so we teach, live for God. Make Him the center. We start there without first pointing out the heart God has for His people and then we wonder why people don't walk in his ways. It's the gospel first, God's heart for his people. That grows love in our hearts for him. Our love for God results in our living for God. Jesus said it, right? John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commands. I always heard that as some guilt trip, right? You're not doing what you say, so you must not love me. <laughs> Jesus is not like your mom or grandmother make you feel guilty. He's just making a statement. If you love me, a heart of love for me is going to result in your walking in my ways. Our only hope for the church in this culture is to have a heart for God within a community of people who have a heart for God. And God shows us that that happens by seeing God's heart for us, and that develops in us a heart for him, and that leads to obedience and walking in his ways. That's the only hope for the church in this culture today. Let's pray and ask God to do that in and through us. Oh, Heavenly Father, you're so good in your word. Lord, just forgive me. I come here looking for something else and want to make a text say what I want it to say. Thank you that you speak clearly and loudly in your word and so, in a way that's so applicable to where we live. Uh, Lord, we can hardly believe it. Lord, help us to see your love for us and your heart for us. That you come when we're slaves in our bondage to our sin and you free us and bring us into your kingdom and adopt us into your family. And that you give us your laws so that we know how life works best. Help us to see your love for us so that we might love you back. And help us to walk in your ways because we want to out of a love and a desire that we have for you, not because we have to. And Father, we just leave the culture, the future of the church, we leave those things to you, Father. That, that, that is for you to figure out. But as for us, as for this house of God, I just pray that you would develop in us a heart for you 
within a community of people who have a heart for you. Just in 